This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're incredibly fortunate. We have Laura Love as a guest on the podcast. She's the founder of Ground Floor Media and the co-founder of Center Table. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Absolutely. So Ground Floor Media is a strategic communications company that I started 16 years ago in my basement in Boulder, Colorado. And we, on that side of the agency, we handle everything from media relations to thought leadership to crisis and issues management. And our clients range from everyone from Children's Hospital of Colorado to Noble Energy to Tennyson Center for Children. Our sister agency is an agency that we started about a year and a half ago. And um, the name of that agency is Center Table. And that's the digital arm of what we do on the communications side. That's awesome. And I'm familiar a little bit with some of the entities that you described. And, And we have some level of common ground, both of us has spent a little time back in Tennessee. You, yes. and, you at Vandy and me as a wannabe Vandy kid at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, segueing just a little bit, you know, in, in, in looking about what you do within your agency, and I think folks get confused when they hear about what you do. So when you're working with a client, what types of things do you bring to the table for your client that moves their needle or causes a transformation for their business? Sure, absolutely. And I, you know, it's funny that I've been doing this for a long time now, and I think my parents still don't know what I do. So what we like to say is that we're storytellers, and how we tell a company or an organization's story depends on the audiences they want to reach and the tools that they have in their arsenal. So it could be if a company comes to us and they have a challenge, right, that they um, want to launch a new product, We can tell that story through video. We can tell it by talking to the media. We can tell it by putting that CEO on a panel and having them tell the rest of the world what they do. So the tools that we have to help shape that story and share it um, have really grown since even I started the agency 16 years ago. But the point is to make the impact and create brand awareness for a company. On the flip side of that, a big part of our agency is um, focused on, as I mentioned, crisis and issues management. So sometimes it's keeping a company out of the news or minimizing the impact of something that could be perceived as something negative that they have to face. I think about uh, a typical business owner mm-hmm. and you know, most business owners looking for more clients, more revenue. And what's the most common question or desire or misunderstanding that you hear from a new customer to your firm? Well, our favorite one used to be, how soon can you get us on Oprah? (laughs) 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 That's usually when we exit stage left. Um, The misconception is that public relations equals sales, and that isn't always the case. It certainly can help, but public relations is really about brand awareness and communicating with your key audiences. It doesn't necessarily always result in a sales. I've heard brand awareness, and for a lot of the the folks out there going brand awareness, uh, you know, Coca-Cola comes to mind. And in, in a market like Denver, when you're talking about brand awareness for a local company, what does that mean to you? Well, it really doesn't matter what it means to me. It matters what it means to that company, right? And Mm -hmm. so every company has a different audience that they want to reach or set of 
folks that they want to reach. And we try and design custom programs that relate back to that particular audience. For some clients, it's how do they impact the community? Belco Credit Union has been a long-term client of ours. And you know one of their big goals is to give back to our community. And they do that in a variety of ways. And so our work with them is helping to develop and, and then amplify the programs they do um, whether it's you know with the marathon or with um, a parade or an opening of a new branch, and they want to give back in in a nonprofit in that community, so it could depend on the company and how they want to reach out to the audience. You know, it, I think uh, starting from your basement in Boulder, mm-hmm. um, take us back to that time frame as you're busy starting your company. And you're looking out on the the landscape and go, I have to go look for customers and clients. If you can, compare and contrast that to now. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I never anticipated starting a company. It wasn't a goal of mine. I've never had a business plan. And what happened is I actually, I moved to Colorado to be the director of marketing for a technology company. It was a fabulous company. And the CEO was one of my friends from Vanderbilt, actually. And um, the company couldn't get Series B financing, and we ended up having to shut our doors. And I had just purchased my first house. I was getting married in six weeks, and I got laid off. <laughs> no pressure. No None. pressure. So, <laughs> and I say that with a smile now. I think there were probably a, there were a few moments of tears when I first found out. But looking back, I'm really grateful it happened that way. Um, it was in April of 2001, and I got married in June. Went away to our honeymoon and came back and thought I had jet lag. Didn't have jet lag, but I was pregnant. Um, about four months later, my husband lost his job. Uh, it was right after 9-11. And as you well remember, people were laying off people left and right. And our daughter was born six weeks later. So, you know, as they always say, desperate times call for desperate measures. And truly, I look back and I didn't get on the internet to search on how to build a business or start a company. I sort of went with my gut instinct and knew that I knew how to do communications and dove right in. So if I compare that from 2001, you know, 17 years later, there's still the same passion and same energy and same drive. There's a little more cadence, (laughs) a little smoother cadence to uh, the rhythm these days than there was back then. You started... And for a period of time, you were the business. And so you're knee-deep in doing the business. For you now, what's the difference? Are you in the business still, or are you on the business? It's such a great question, and I, and I share that with a lot of entrepreneurs. It's the moment when you shift from working in the business to working on the business. And I will say that it shifted probably, I'm 70% working on the business and about 30% in the business. And I can only do that because I've hired such amazing people who, quite frankly, are, are much smarter than I am. And I learned to get out of their way, right? And so I come in and I really think about the growth and the vision and the culture versus the day-to-day operations. There was a time where you were in the business and you made a conscious decision, I presume, to go on the business. What was that decision process or thought process? Self-generated or did somebody push you that way? So I'd say there were two catalysts for that. The first was a group called the Entrepreneurs Organization that I joined about 13 years ago. And it's a peer-to-peer group that are all business owners 
entrepreneurs, the nutty entrepreneurs. And, you know, it's a, it's a confidential group, but they gave me feedback kind of on where my strengths were and how I could best grow the business. If I truly wanted to scale it, I had to stop doing the work and I had to start hiring people who could do the work so I could go grow the business. And the second piece of it was, you know, you start to really figure out where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. And my weakness is on the operational side of doing the work that needs to get done. I can sit all day long and think about creative strategies and big ideas, right? I can go get involved in the community and help solve problems for them. But if you're the client, you want to hire my team to get you the results. And it was that awareness of knowing your own weaknesses and being able to hire for those weaknesses that was really the shift for me. I think about going from, you you know, you look up in the mirror in the morning and you're in charge. And you go, if it doesn't get done, it's my own fault. And then when you start putting the team on board, then you're responsible for their livelihood and their payroll. And, you know, if you're looking out and there is another creative person out there that's thinking about going down the road of starting a business, is there a piece of advice you might offer? There's probably a lot of pieces of advice (laughs) I would offer them. Um, I think the thing about owning a business is you have to put your ego aside. And you have to realize that even though you're in charge and even though ultimately at the end of the day it falls on you, you've got to have a lot of trust for your team and really let them do their job. And if you can't trust and you can't let your ego go, it probably isn't going to be a very fun ride for you. (laughs) It's going to be a long ride. You know, and with the current dialogue about women and workplace challenges and so on. Um, do you think looking back over your career that being a woman running your business was a benefit or a challenge? I just had this discussion with one of my forum members the other day. It's so funny. I said, I feel a little bit offended. Like, I don't think I was ever sexually harassed. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) She looked at me. I was like, no, I'm serious. I don't think I was. So the funny thing is I never even considered gender in the equation. And a lot of it, you know, my dad's an entrepreneur. My mom, I grew up with her telling me, you can do whatever you want. Never, ever heard because you're a woman or because you're a girl, you can't. And so as I built this company, it was never about what can't I do because I'm a woman. It was more actually about how can I create a culture and an environment that other working moms, mostly moms, could thrive where they weren't stifled by the workplace politics and the rules of a typical work environment, but we could create a new kind of environment where you could be a mom or you could just, or be a dad, and you could still have a career that you loved. And that's really what we set out to do. You know, and I think about that, and and for the listener, they're going to go, that sounds like what I want to do. So what does that culture work workflow, what does that look like? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's something that we take a lot of pride in. We've won Outside Magazine's Best Place to Work in America for five years and twice at number one. And that's not just a marketing program, right? It's truly the things that we've put in place. And it's it's multidimensional, but it really starts with our values. So we hire for values. And when I say that, you know, for us, it's passionate collaboration, it's integrity, And it's mutual respect. And so when we're hiring somebody, it is a peer environment. So we hire 
And if somebody has a red flag, we listen to that, right? Anybody in this organization, everyone has a chance to interview somebody. And if anybody has a problem, we listen to it. So everybody's bought in. And we certainly look at the skill set. But when I meet somebody and I go out and interview them, you know, I look at a couple of things that have nothing to do with their resume. Actually, I rarely look at their resume. It's, we know we go out to lunch or to breakfast and I watch how they treat the wait staff. You know, do they write the thank you note? Do they, how do they treat our receptionist, our front desk? You know, she, she is the heartbeat of this company. How do they treat her when she walks in? And I really try and look at the person and I ask some questions like, what do you do, right? If you had six months and money wasn't an issue, what would you do? And I look at how they give back, you know, what sort of community involvement do they have? Um, and how they spend their free time with their family, whether they have kids or not. And so when you're hiring for values and you're hiring for a human being versus just a skill set, it really does change the dynamic. And it starts creating and building on a culture that then we put programs in place to support that culture once they're in. I think about the beginning hiring mindset Mm -hmm. when you were early on in the business and the mindset today did you always hire this way or did you evolve to this spot? I've always hired this way. Um, a lot of our team members, and we're almost 40 strong now, they have been referrals. So I find that you know your best team members come from other people who know how you operate and know that somebody could fit into this environment. And our environment isn't for everybody. You know, We have a hard time attracting people that don't see life as a work-life blend. We're really pretty strong on this idea and this concept of a blend, not a balance. And for some people, that doesn't work. Yeah, workaholics have a bit of a challenge with it, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, we have people that work around the clock, but they also go out and have a life, mm-hmm. and they're not afraid to be really authentic about their lives to us and to the clients. They're not hiding, right? If they take a phone call from this <laughs> from a chairlift, they're telling you, hey, I'm, I'm going to pick up your call, but... I'm on a chairlift in Winter Park. Great, thanks for telling me. Well, you know, I, I, you know, from my sense of that, a great deal of what I synthesize doesn't come to me necessarily at work. You know, and and there's a great deal of value for for me. It's windshield time, or getting just away. Mm-hmm. You know, the shower seems to be a favorite spot, mm-hmm. but hard to write stuff down in the shower. <laughs> just is exactly. Yeah, yeah we do. Um, every year we commit to an offsite and. For the past probably seven years, we've utilized Outward Bound Professional Facilitators. And we get the team away and we spend the night overnight. And we have invested in a program many of your listeners may know called Emergenetics. And we use, it's a program that looks at how you think and how you behave. And we put our teams together based on those profiles. And when we go away for our offsite, we use those in team building and really trying to figure out you know, what's working and then where could we still improve? And some really interesting programs have come out of stopping and just listening to the other team members talk about what could be improved and being open to the conversation. Just as an aside for the outward bound experience that you have, what's the most challenging exercise? Oh, I hate the high ropes course. They make me do it. My business partner, Ramona, she loves those darn things. Makes me crazy. But, you know, we have to do those. And then the trust exercises. I'm like, I love you guys. I'm not sure I trust you to catch me right now. (laughs) (laughs) I think about repelling in heights. 
it's a, it'll level the playing field. It does level the playing <laughs> field, right? Playing field. And, and we always walk away knowing that, you know, people have your backs. And I think those are, it's really good to get out of the office, like you said, and work on things that are important. One of my favorite initiatives that came out of that was we sat around and, and again, as I mentioned, talked about the things that were challenges, what kept us up at night. And several of our team members who actually are working moms said, you know, Sundays are really hard for me. It brought back like the college feeling of, oh my God, I have to start school tomorrow and I've got so much to do and I'm overwhelmed. And they said there's that Sunday night blues, right? Where Mm -hmm. you just, I got to do some stuff. And that feeling of walking into Monday, kind of already feeling icky. Mm -hmm. So we came up with a program called Zero Entry Monday. And our office doesn't officially open until 11 a.m. on Monday. Now, it doesn't mean if the client needs you or you know, you need to attend a meeting outside of the office, you certainly should, but it gives people permission. Go to the grocery store, go work out, go do something on Monday so when you walk in, you're in a good place. And um, I don't know that we would have come up with that had we not taken the time away to sort of think about what wasn't working. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we're going to shift gears a little bit. This is the the quiz phase, so I get to ask you all kinds of questions. You know, for you, uh, the most recent book, or perhaps the most influential book that's altered your perception on being a founder of your company or how you run your company? So I have this horrible habit of reading two books at the same time at all times, which I'm not sure I'd advise for anyone. But right now, I'm reading True North um, by Bill George. And it's, I don't know if you've read that one. It's It's a really good book. And I'll tell you, I'm only halfway but it's, um, you know, it's a lot about following that internal compass to become this authentic leader. And until you become the authentic leader, you can't truly become into your power. And I love that one. And the second one that I'm reading, and it's interesting because they sort of go hand in hand, is a book called Falling Upward. And it's about spirituality for the two halves of your life and how you go through some really hard times early on, but you wouldn't appreciate this proverbial second half of your life unless you had hit rock bottom. And they speak to me sort of from that spiritual sense and from the business sense. So I love them. I'm both, I keep reading them, so I must love them. And so you're looking right at the questions, and here we go. And it says, what failure at the time, what apparent failure has served you or your company best or set you up for future achievement? I say all my failures have, and I've had some big ones. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and I'm grateful for them. I I used to describe my life as a beautiful train wreck until somebody told me I couldn't do that because it sounded terrible. I still like to describe it that way. But, you know, as as I'm a single mom of three kids and my divorces have been some of the hardest sort of components of my life. And yet looking back, I'm really grateful that I went through it because other people, especially in this organization, go through hard times. And what it's allowed me to do is have a lot of empathy for them and a lot of grace, which I think, no, I I don't think, I know that had I not gone through it, I wouldn't have that same level of compassion that I do now. There's some uh, benefit from mileage. Mm, Right? Clearly. Yeah. So second thought, if you could teach a course or share an insight with your very best friend or a colleague, that was just starting a business, what would it be and why? So as an entrepreneur, and I mentioned this earlier, but 
I would teach a course called The Art of the Blended Life. As entrepreneurs, and especially when you're young and you're starting out and you're trying to accomplish everything, there's this fear, right? I've got to do it all. I've got to be perfect. I've got to be a workaholic. And what can happen, and I I can say this because I was one, is that everything else becomes secondary and building your business becomes primary. And if you can't blend the two, your personal life and your friendships and your faith and your community with building the business, you're going to run out of fuel. And for so many entrepreneurs, it's that, you know, this is a sprint, right? And it shouldn't be because it's a marathon. (laughs) Because it's a sprint that turns into a marathon just at the same pace. Mm -hmm. You know, for for you, thinking back, you've been doing this quite some time. And there was probably a period, you know, when you were in a business five, eight years. What advice would the Laura today give the Laura of eight years ago or ten years ago? To listen more. There's this fear in, especially in my mid, well, early to mid-30s, is that because I had the title of president, I had to know all the answers. And I missed some opportunities, right? You learn a lot when you can stop and, and listen. And I think about that. I've heard it more than once from presidents and business owners and CEOs. And you go, like, when you run into something, there's an expectation that you know everything. And that would make you someone else. And so when you run into a thing that you can't find an answer to, what do you do? Well, I do a couple of things. The first is there are experts out there, right, that are really good at their job for a reason. And you can find them. Mm -hmm. So go find them, right? And I will also say don't give your power away. Listen to the experts. But if your gut tells you that something's off about that recommendation, trust it. Because they don't know your business like you do. And I've hired some of the most fabulous consultants, and I, and I still use them to this day, and I love their advice. They're very analytical, and they keep me, I love to say, they keep me out of jail. Um, but at the end of the day, I trust my own gut. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it. You have to have both. Did you learn that by experience to make sure you stuck with your gut? Yeah, there's this, there's this desire, right, that... I want to please, and I think a lot of young executives want to do that. You want to do the right thing, and you've heard that 10 other companies have done it this way, so it must be the right way to do it. And every time you have that sort of itch, right? Like, this this doesn't really feel right. Every time I refused to listen to that, I failed. And, you know, this this advice was not, (laughs) it was well-earned, trust me. Not congruent. Yeah, right? You know, it's, it's funny, I hear that frequently. You know, that somehow or another, that accumulation of experience is your gut. Mm-hmm. And somebody comes in and, you know, definition of an expert is somebody from somewhere that knows something. <laughs> right. usually, usually from out of town. Out of town, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. They fly in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the seagull approach. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But they, you know, when I started the company, I was like, I want to hire consultants. And then if I have full time, I want to give them the opportunity to work part time. My theory was, I don't care how they get paid or where they work. I want to hire the brightest people who will make our clients look the best. And to this day, we have part-time, we have full-time, we have consultants. We have a 2% attrition rate. 
that's unheard of in this business. And it's not because I've created the magic. It's because we've given people a chance to do what they love and work in an environment that they also feel like they're part of their home, right? And their family versus I have to act one way by going home and I'm going to act a different way when I come to work. It's, it's, it's an odd concept, but no one thought I could do it. Now, I will say 15 years later, people are like, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe we're on to something. <laughs> After 15 years, I'm yeah. an overnight success. It's weird. That happens like yeah, that. Yeah, that happened. You know, looking back over the past few years, what do you think is the most recent initiative that you executed that's helped your company the most? That's a hard one. Um, but I would say that it was solidifying our commitment to the community and and I say that by, we've always been a big believer in giving back to the community. And from inception, we've donated about 15% back to nonprofits, either in reduced cost of our labor or not pro bono hours or, or in-kind gifts or you know financial contributions. But we formed the Get Grounded Foundation in 2015, and it's a private 501c3 that's funded by profits from both Center Table and Ground Floor Media. And it is one of the ways that we give back to the community by doing grants twice a year. We've given about $80,000 in grants since inception, and we're very targeted in the types of programs that we support. But the goal is the same, is that we're providing seed money to help get an innovative or entrepreneurial program off the ground. And again, it's an initiative that I love because it shows how a small company can make a big impact and, and there is this fear or this resistance almost when you have a smaller company or an organization that you're not going to make that kind of impact, so why bother? And I think what it says to our clients, our partners, and our team members is you can make a difference. It doesn't matter how big your company is. Yeah, you, you know, you see that it's, it's not what you say, it's what you do. Mm-hmm. Very much. Mm-hmm. So looking back... And, you know, I'm sure other folks might tell you, what's the most unusual habit or what others may consider is out of the ordinary that's helped you or your company the most? So I would say they like to laugh here that, you know, I go on walks. And and I say that, and it shouldn't be taken lightly, but I think it's a really important thing to get out of the office, to spend time with people, to go on walks, to hear from them. You're not distracted. You can focus solely on that team member or your client. So we spend a lot of time on walks. I also try and go on walks when I'm on conference calls. It's amazing when you're moving and you're you're active how your mind keeps moving. And so I would say that's one of the the most interesting things that we do here. The second thing that we that we still do is you know we try and we used to have stand up meetings like 19 at 9. So 19 minutes we'd have meetings. And then you had to get it all done in 19 and we're done. And to book meetings that aren't an hour, but 46 minutes. So looking at things that make people sort of be more mindful of where they are and how present they can be. I've heard similar, but not quite like that. What brought you to that thought process? Um, Business books, right? It's, um, you know, it's just reading a lot. I'm a huge Vern Harnish fan and he's written a lot about that. Um, Jim Collins, I love his books, right? And we do a lot. Jeff Smart does a lot on hiring. So it's really, I've taken sort of the, the best of and where it fit with this organization mm-hmm. and this culture. And, and we've tried them on. Some haven't always worked, right? Some mm-hmm. things don't, don't work out, but you got to try them. 
I would imagine that the reaction to the shortened staff meetings is highly positive. Mm-hmm. Get her done. Get her done. Perfect. Over the past few years, what belief or protocol have you established in your company that has most impacted you or the, your company's success? I wouldn't say established for us because it's all, always been a part of who we are. But I talked about hiring for culture. And what I think a lot of leaders miss is the firing for culture. And it's a hard thing to do, especially with the top performer. But we have established, and we don't let many people go. I think we've let six maybe in 17 years. But we're not afraid to say goodbye to somebody, even if they're a high performer, if they don't fit into the culture. And what that says to the rest of the team members is, you know, value-based living and value-based working matters. You know, and and again, as back to, it's not what you say, it is what you do. Mm -hmm. People watch what you do. In the advice space, if you were going to offer advice to a new CEO, new founder, that was assuming the role of founder CEO for the first time, what advice might that be? I think you said this earlier, and I said I'm terrible at just giving one piece of advice, but authenticity. I think team members are really drawn to authentic leaders, and sometimes that means getting really vulnerable. And new CEOs, new leaders who are trying to make a name for themselves, and I can say this because I was one, it's important to remember that people are drawn to you, they're loyal, they're, they're going to fight for you if they know the real you. And they're also going to feel comfortable when things aren't going right in their world to bring it to you because they understand you're a human being and you're not any different than they are. You know, I, I think about it as the person's listening says, okay, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start tomorrow by being more authentic. Mm-hmm. And, and if you were to walk into an organization and go, how would you judge that the leader of the organization is authentic or not? So it's back to that gut, right? You yeah. can kind of feel. You can feel when somebody's on stage versus truly present with you and sharing a part of their soul, even if it's that 5% that they you wouldn't expect from them. It's walking into a room and being prepared to give 5% of yourself that people can feel. And it's usually when somebody shares something that... People understand they make mistakes, right? And that they're not perfect. And a leader may not have all the answers, but they're going to try really, really hard to find them. You know, it's, it's, I've, I have not heard that when I thought that was useful, hmm. insightful. For most common misconceptions about you or your role, so if you were to ask some of the folks, and, and, and you know, the misconception that they had either of you at initially or now, so this is the one that I um, actually learned this year during uh, we do a, a leadership profile exercise. And there is this misconception that my life is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I, you know, that's what I thought when it's I said, weird, hey, right? yeah, it's going perfect. <laughs> I'm sitting across from Miss Perfection. Uh, right? Well, yeah. You're like, oh, your life looks, you know, you've got the great children, which they are great. Um, you know, the white dog, the pretty house, you serve on board, you have an amazing family. And actually all of that is true. And I'm grateful for all of it. And there are times that my life is that beautiful train wreck. Right? My son's home with shingles. My six-year-old is, you know, went to school without his coat on, so the school's calling me. And my teenage daughter, you know, is being a teenager. And there's always something. And so to have this perception that someone's life, the grass is greener, looks better than yours, it's such a great insight into reality, right? Nobody's life is perfect. Yeah, you're not the CEO when you come home. (laughs) Right? You're not. But that is actually an important point, right? How you act at home and how you act at work should pretty much be similar, right? You know, it's hard to be someone else. It is hard. It takes a lot of energy to be someone else. Yeah. And if and I need... That's what's already taken anyways. <laughs> right. No, it's, somebody's already doing that job. Yeah. But, you know, how you act at home and how you act here, that's back to that authentic person. Yeah. yeah I, you know, and it's funny, your children know. And, you know, one of the things I always tell folks, I never do anything I can't explain to my kids. And I think that's a pretty good benchmark Mm -hmm. to stick around with. So looking back over the past few years, what should you have said no to and why? So I learned, you know, no is a complete sentence. (laughs) (laughs) It only took me about 15 years to learn that. And it's true. I had a tendency to say yes, one, because I was passionate about getting involved in projects and I wanted to try and make an impact. But the truth is we only have 24 hours in our day and I was going wide and not deep. And so I would say that it wasn't really about one thing. It was saying yes to so many things that nothing was benefiting from my involvement. And two years ago, I sat down and said, what can I move off my plate so the things that stay on my plate are important, impactful, and meaningful? And every year I do a plan, you know, with all the pillars of my life, faith, family, personal health, and friends, and slash community. And I really try and figure out where I'm going to focus my time. So if I do get the request to do something or to join something, I can look at that goal sheet and say, does it fit? And sometimes, honestly, it's not on there. And I'll have to say, okay, what has to come off mm-hmm. so I can do that? An interesting perspective. You know, I think about the decision to no longer do. Mm-hmm. A whole lot harder to do than say, I'm going to start. Stopping? is really hard. And I'm not very good at the spaces in between. So that actually is one of my goals for 2018 is to appreciate the space in between. I get hives, I start itching. <laughs> There's five minutes of downtime. What do I do? <laughs> Wasting time. Wasting time. Wasting time. Great. In the day-to-day operations of your company as the founder, what is your personal habit or self-talk dialogue that keeps you and the company focused? And why do you think that is? So my internal dialogue is that this business is a roller coaster. And you need to remember that when the cart goes to the bottom. Because you just need to wait. It will go up again. And I have that visual that I keep in the front of my mind when things get rough. And externally, when... 
we're dealing and it's whether it's an HR challenge or a client communication issue that's come up is there's the story. So it's what's wrong and what's really wrong. And if you can ask yourself that question when you're sitting across from somebody who comes to you with a challenge, it's interesting how it shifts the dialogue. What's wrong and what's really wrong. So if, if I was sitting across from you with a problem and you were looking at me and so would you really ask me what's wrong or what's really wrong? No, it's not about asking. It's mm-hmm. just about kind of trying to read between the lines, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody comes to you with a challenge, whether it's an employee and they're, you know, they're upset about, you know, a policy or procedure, mm-hmm. is it really about that or is maybe something going on at home that this feels like one more thing? that isn't something they want to manage. If a client's sitting across from you and they're upset about the level of communication that is coming from the team members, is it that or is it something more than that? And and trying to decipher, and, and truly sometimes it is just that, but oftentimes I find that there's always another story playing in someone's head. You know, could have had a bad day. Right. Could have run over the cat. I mean... Right. They could have gotten in a fight with their mother or their wife. or mm-hmm. And so everybody has a story. Sure. So going toward the tail end of this, if mm-hmm. folks were to say what your superpower, what you're best at, what is your superpower? Multitasking. I'm an expert multitasker. Now, I'm not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> Start with that. But... I will say that I can juggle. If I had to put on a costume, I would be, you know, the juggler. Okay. And in a, in a juggling space nowadays, what's your favorite technology assistant that helps you do your juggling or multitasking? So you're going to laugh at me, but I use an old school notebook and my phone as my two primary modes of communication. And I cannot go to sleep, even if it's on a Saturday or a Sunday, until I take my notebook out. And it can't be a lined notebook. It has to be blank pages. And on the right side, I have my to-do list of all things to do with the company. And on the left side of the, of the page are all things that have to do with my family or my personal life. And anything that doesn't happen that day gets crossed off and put on the next page. And I actually can't fall asleep until I do that. And what it does, I know you laugh, but old school, unless I write it down, I can't remember. And when I wake up in the morning, I don't have to stress. I don't stay up all night worrying because I put it on the paper. No, there's so much psychology behind that, as you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's a good habit. Now, the thing I did not ask, and I should have asked early on, mm-hmm. is for the folks who are going, I need to reach out to you and find you on social media or however they find you. How do they find you? So I'm, again, old-fashioned. I love email. Love at groundfloormedia.com. And... My problem is I need it all to come to one central source because if I have to juggle LinkedIn messages and (laughs) Facebook messages, and I will never answer. I will find things from a year ago when I've spoken in an event, and I feel terrible, but I need it right in my email inbox. Okay, so email does it. Email does it. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time Mm. out of your day and multitasking with me. (laughs) Thank you. Look, I was focused on you. I didn't pick up my phone once. Yep, yep. (laughs) You have proof. (laughs) That's right. It was, I I think the insights, you know, are extremely useful. And the things that we hope, you know, in the podcast is there'll be somebody out there that's going through perhaps a challenge or a struggle. And they can come to and listen to the mileage and go, you know what, I'll try that, or maybe that will help me. And so that's the unintended consequence of this podcast. 
Yeah, I love that. And I will tell you the one thing I didn't share that I, I share with everyone who's thinking about starting a new business and taking the leap of faith is don't do too much research, right? It's like getting a diagnosis and you jump online. You will never take the next step because there are so many pitfalls. Just do it. If you're passionate, just do it. Minimum viable product. Get something out the door. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Laura, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. You betcha. Yeah.